By the way, George, I'm so glad they found a place for you. (laughs) George's nickname was always Crazy George, so here we have. No, that's not true. Let's go to the scriptures this morning, and my message is from 1 Kings chapter 22. So if we can go to the scriptures, 1 Kings chapter number 22. And we're going to begin reading in verse 29, but I want to give you some background first. So we won't start reading the scripture right away. I want to give you a background. We're entering the history of Israel during the time of the divided kingdom. You may remember that uh, Saul and David uh, were kings over Israel. And then when Solomon came to the throne, Israel got to its zenith of power and prestige. And, but when Solomon died... When Solomon died, there was, a, there was a rebellion of authority and power. Who would rule? And actually, there was a division in Solomon's uh, family, and so the kingdom divided, and the southern kingdom, centered around Jerusalem, became uh, Judah. And the northern kingdom, which had left worship at Jerusalem, which had gone more toward the world and less toward commitment to God, the northern kingdom then took the name Israel. So in the time in which we're going to read, there's a king of Judah, southern, a king who had a reputation in the scripture for uh, being somewhat godly, and then a northern king, Ahab, and no king of the north in the entire history in the Old Testament No king of the northern kingdom was ever called godly. They were evil, evil, and evil. And the king's name in the north is Ahab. You may remember his wife's name more than his. Her name was Jezebel. And uh, her name is so well known today that we don't even name a dog Jezebel because she was so wicked and so idolatrous and so uh, such an influence on her husband, she brought wicked, idolatrous worship into the palace. She made enemies of God's prophets. She hated the, the word of God. She was a terrible, wicked influence on Ahab and on the nation, the divided upper kingdom of uh, Israel. And so we come to the passage with all that, with all that behind. Now, king, the king of the southern kingdom at this moment is Jehoshaphat and Ahab in the north. So Jehoshaphat comes to visit Ahab, comes to, uh, to, to bind their nations together perhaps a little more, and that brings to Ahab's mind a plan. Southern kingdom around Jerusalem, Northern kingdom, we might call it Samaria and such now, but the northern kingdom. And directly north of that was Syria, and Syria is an enemy of all the Jewish people. And Ahab had continuing border fights with the king of Syria. And there had been some years of stalemate, some years of peace, but now the king of Syria seems to be approaching Israel, again, with threats and with troubles. And so Ahab has a plan. 
And Ahab asks Jehoshaphat, will you join with me and together we will defeat, together we'll defeat the king of Syria. Good plan. Except that you're enticing a godly king to join a worldly, idolatrous king to fight a battle against another king, and God wasn't in it. Now, how do we know that God wasn't in it? Well, Ahab consulted the prophets, the ones that, that Jezebel had installed in place. He, he, he uh, had the prophets come and, and predict what would happen in the battles. And they told Ahab and Jehoshaphat, Oh yes, you're going to be successful. Of course, when you get together, you're going to fight these battles and the king of Syria is going to be defeated. Everything's going to be wonderful. Go to war. And Jehoshaphat, the godly southern king, said, Isn't there another prophet that might come? A prophet that is a prophet of Jehovah God? And Ahab said, Well, yeah, we can do that. I've got this prophet. He's kind of a pain in the neck. His name is Micaiah. Every time I ask him advice, he tells me negative things. But if you really insist, I'll have him come and I'll let him prophesy. So in the previous chapter, Micaiah comes and Ahab says, So what's going to happen when we get together? Jehoshaphat and his armies, my armies, against Syria. What's going to happen? And it seems almost a sarcastic tone. A facetious, a facetious tone where Micaiah says, well, you're going to win, of course. And he said, no, 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 no. Tell me the truth. Don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me the truth. And when he tells him the truth, he says, well, you're going to die in the battle. And you're not going to win the battle. Ahab is so thrilled at the truth that he throws Micaiah in jail. And he says, listen, I'll deal with you when I get back from battle. What do you think Micaiah says? I'm not going to worry about that because you're not coming back from the battle. Now we come to to 1 Kings 22 and verse 29. So the king of Israel, Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and enter into the battle, but put thou on thy robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. Huh. What kind of a plan is that? I tell you, friend, you wear all your royal garments, you wear all your royal warfare, your wardrobe, and you go out in the middle of the battlefield, I'm going to look like a regular soldier. Now, he might have been seeming to flatter him. You know, you're the, you're the one that'll, that, that will... Order the soldiers around. You'll be in charge. Maybe that's what was meant. It isn't said, but maybe that's what it's meant. But what do you think was real? That way, no one's going to target me because I'm going to look like a foot soldier. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Verse 31. But the king of Syria, the enemy, commanded his thirty and two captains that had rule over his chariot, saying, Fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king of Israel, Ahab. And it came to pass, when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, Surely it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And it came to pass, when the captains of the chariots 
perceived that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. So Jehoshaphat did not lose his life because of this disguise, because of this treachery. And at this point, Ahab isn't being identified among the soldiers. No one's pursuing him individually. But then verse 34, my key verse this morning, and the title of the message. And a certain man drew a bow at venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. That wound is going to be a fatal wound. By sundown, he's lost his life. But I want us to think of this, this single verse. A certain man at a venture. So as the battle, as the battle proceeds, and the king of Israel cannot be identified, and the king of Syria has given orders to his, to his uh, commanders, look for the king of Israel. He's the one I want. They can't find him. The battle tones down and recedes. And going back, it seems that one of the archers decides that he'll take an arrow, he'll put it on his string of his bow, and he'll launch it toward the enemy. And where it falls, it falls. It's at a venture. But in God's providence, the arrow flies through the air and comes down on that ark, and strikes Ahab, the king of Israel, in the harness. We think that he probably had a heavy leather body armor, we'd call it today, held together with leather straps, and that there in the seams between the body armor pieces, the arrow struck. At a venture, accidentally, coincidentally. Do you believe that? We don't believe that. A certain man had been prepared by the Lord to launch an arrow into the sky with no target in mind, and that certain man and that certain arrow accomplished God's purpose for Ahab, which was to remove him from his position. Micaiah had prophesied that would happen. Another prophecy said that dogs would lick his blood, and later that of his wife Jezebel. And if we continued reading at home, we'd discover that he bled out in his chariot. A certain man, without a target, at a certain venture, launches an arrow to accomplish God's plan. Now, I have to admit, this is a negative. We're talking about God taking the life of the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, but that had to be done. The kingdom had become so idolatrous, so wicked, so against God, that the king would actually risk the life of the king of Judah to protect himself. That he was only concerned about what he could own, what he could do, and his power. This is the man whose wife had made sure that a, the owner of a vineyard, Naboth, lost his life so that King Ahab could take this little vineyard 
when he had everything. This was Ahab, who the enemy, the enemy of the prophet of God, who on Carmel called down fire from heaven and slew prophets. But here they were again, prophesying, never cut out the idolatry, the false worship of other gods, never disciplined the palace, never. He needed to be removed, and a certain man was the tool of God to bring that about. Now, if we see that, that the will of God is always righteous, is always the right path, then we can see that this man, unnamed, was used of God as an instrument to send God's people down the right path. Take away the negative part, well, somebody died. Take away, well, he was a wicked. A certain man was used of God to take God's people down the right path. Unnamed, a certain man. First, the Lord prepared a certain person to accomplish his purpose And he has prepared certain persons to guide us along the personal path of maturity and righteousness. There are people there for you along the way. He prepared someone for Joseph. You remember Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, the coat of many colors. Joseph who would be sold into slavery. For what purpose? To become second only to the Pharaoh in Egypt. Joseph from his own lips said his brothers had meant that for evil, but God had meant it for good. What about that certain man? One day, Joseph's dad, Israel, says, I want you to go out and take some stuff to your brothers out in the field. They're in the back 40. They're in the north 40. They're taking care of the flocks. Go find them and do this errand for me. Joseph knows where they are, he thinks, and he goes there. No brothers. No flocks, can't do it. And he turns around, and Genesis 37 says, A certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he, Joseph, said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And that certain man, unnamed, that certain person, out in the middle of a field, for what reason? That certain individual used of God to say, go past the hillside, turn left at the river, go another 150 feet and you'll see your brother. Now that's in the, that's in the Hebrew. You have to read the Hebrew to get that. Okay, but to feed your brother, you'll see your brothers. You say, that's a terrible thing because the brothers took him, they put him in a pit, they sold him as a slave. Wait, wait, wait. From the brothers' point of view and their accountability, that was wicked but it accomplished God's purpose in Joseph's life and brought brought a deliverance for all the children of Israel through the famines, deliverance in Egypt. God's plan accomplished through a certain man. He prepared for, for Saul, not the Old Testament king, but the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of Christians, who would be Paul. Acts chapter 9, it says, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. 
And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Saul needed a certain man who would trust that his conversion was real, because other Christians were saying, That can't be. Saul of Tarsus, the one who hates Christians, the one who arrests them, imprisons them, and at times executes them, that can't be. We're not going to trust him. But Ananias is told, as a certain disciple, go there. He talks to Saul about baptism. He talks to Saul, who's been blinded on the road to Damascus, and the scales come off his eyes and he can see. He introduces him to other Christians. And that's the first encounter that Saul has with Christians. The first encounter that the man who would soon be called Paul, because of his ministry, because of the filling of the Spirit through the work and help of Barnabas, the great missionary church planner, it was a certain disciple whose name we know, Ananias, one man that made the difference. Without him, we don't know but what Saul would have been abandoned or even, wait a minute, are Christians always kind to their enemies? Oh, pastor, love your enemies. Yes, I know, but it would not have surprised me if somebody like a Peter, not Peter himself, but with that spirit might have taken the sword to lop off Saul's, not his ear, but maybe his head. He's the enemy. certain man accepted him. A certain man instructed him. A certain man changed the history of Christianity. For the disciples, it was a parade of certain men and women. There was the woman with the two mites. There was the lad with the five loaves and two fishes. There was a dad with a a son who had been uh, possessed by demons. There was Mary and Martha. Certain people along the path that were used to teach lessons to the apostles. Real object lessons. Real people lessons. One after another, most unnamed. Now let me ask this. Do you think there could be certain people God has prepared to help you in the next step? When I was first named, there was a gentleman, first saved, a gentleman named Gerald Spangler in the church where I was baptized and discipled. And uh, Gerald was the one who asked me one night to go soul winning. He didn't ask me to go soul winning, low. He called me on the phone and he said, Barry, what are you doing tonight? And I knew Gerald had a pool table in his basement. And I'd been there playing pool. And I like to play pool. And I was sure he was going to say, hey, want to come over and play pool? And I said, I'm not doing anything tonight. And he said, good. Put on a white shirt and a tie and I'll be there in 15 minutes. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't need a white shirt and a tie to play pool. What's this about? Well, I'm going to take you soul winning. I said, I'm busy tonight. It's the truth. And he said, you just told me you weren't. I'll see you in 15. We went soul winning that night, and Brother Spangler led a soul to the Lord. And I said, well, that was great to see you lead a soul to the Lord. And he said, no, you you also won that soul. I said, no, I, I didn't say a word. He said, I wouldn't have gone had you not been with me. That soul is as much yours as mine. Now, he was teaching me a lesson, but it was a true lesson. 
I won my first soul or understood soul winning with Gerilyn. I started my first Sunday school bus route with Gerilyn. He was the bus director. I encountered demon possession for the first time in tenements in Detroit with Gerilyn. I set goals for my Christian growth, reading my Bible and prayer and soul winning and other goals for the first time with Gerilyn. I went to a national conference. Some of you have been to First Baptist of Hammond. I went to pastor school in 1974, two years after I got saved with Gerilyn, and was called to preach. A certain man influenced my life forever. There are very few people in America today that would ever remember the name Gerilyn Spangler unless they were back in my home church in the 70s. Never been on a billboard, never been invited to speak in a national conference. Name unknown to anybody but God and a few, but changed my life. A certain man. There have been some other certain men that had to do with coming here to Stratford. For me, there was a Christian pastor in Danbury named Bob Crichton. He'd been in the bus ministry in my home church. He'd helped me in youth pastoring in my home church. I was a youth pastor when I came back from Bible school, and he helped. I knew he and his uh, family. And he's the one that invited me to come and preach in his church, brand new church in Danbury. And so I preached in Danbury, and I preached in in, uh, several places, a half dozen churches in New England, on a vacation kind of thing, or with a a youth group that that sent some singers, uh, kind of an ensemble. Because of Bob Crichton, I came to New England for the first time and saw New England. I'm from upstate New York, but I was told as soon as I arrived in New England that New, that New York is not part of New England. It was very clear from people in Stratford that New York is not part of New England. That stops at the border. And so uh, I was not from New England, but I encountered New England. And that began something in my heart that over the next uh, four years or so would bring me here to plant a church. For me, it was a Christian named A.V. Henderson, one of the founders of the Baptist Bible Fellowship. I had opportunity to have dinner with him in Atlanta, Georgia, in the greater Atlanta area. I was on a staff, and uh, I was supposed to pick him up from the airport. You know how you pick up a special speaker. I'm low man on the totem pole, and I get to... But I was already... God was already working in my heart to come here to plant a church. I was already planning, and the church name, and the time. And I said, and he needed a meal, so we stopped for dinner. I said, Dr. Henderson, listen... Let me ask you, could Temple Baptist in Detroit, could you, uh, could you possibly consider us for support? And he looked at me. He was the founder, one of the founders of Baptist Bible Fellowship. He was the founder of Baptist Bible College East at the time. He looked at me and he, he just looked up from his meal. And he said, no. He was straightforward. When he preached, he preached 17 to 20 minutes. He was straightforward. He said, no. All you southern boys come up here, and when your wife sees the snowflakes, you leave. No. I said, I'm from upstate New York. He didn't even look up that time. He said, then get with it. (laughs) And in 1979, he sent a $1,000 check to help the church. If any of you are old enough to remember 1979, $1,000 was worth more then than it is now. A.V. Henderson, a certain man at a certain time, because, because of his place and stature, 
It just gave me a sense of encouragement. It wasn't the thousands so much it was somebody believes. Somebody believes New England needs this. For me, it was Mary Dickerson. Ronnie and Mary were bus workers in my bus ministry in Atlanta. I came from a big church up here. I wasn't sure how it would be. You know, you go, our church, uh, let's see. I think uh, I had, I had uh, 2,000 on buses one Sunday, 42 bus routes. Uh, as bus director, the church averaged about 2,500 altogether and had 4,000 on big days. It's a big church, got it? Mega church, south. Now, if you ask me how many people you really know in that situation, it's around 50 or 75. But So Ronnie Dickerson and his wife had been uh, bus captains in my bus ministry, and Ronnie got cancer. And it took his wife life pretty quickly. Great guy. Only knew him a short time. Only served in that church two years. But he was there active and faithful, and then he contracted the cancer, was diagnosed, and it wasn't very long, and he was gone. So in our last two weeks in Atlanta, before planning the church, before moving here in January of 1980, we're trying to figure out the money. We had a U-Haul, 24-foot U-Haul, that was uh, reserved, going to uh, bring my car up behind it, tow it behind. We had a 24-foot U-Haul reserved. We were ready to go. We had no place to stay in Connecticut, by the way. We arrived with no place to stay. Stayed with that pastor, Bob Crichton, in his basement for a few days. And we couldn't pay for the U-Haul. What are we going to do? We have no money. What are we going to do? We have no money. And Mary Dickerson came to me, and she said, Brother Barry, Ronnie always wanted to help start a church. And here's enough to pay for your moving expenses. One check, cover the whole thing. Now, Ronnie had already gone on to heaven through his cancer, but I'll thank him someday. And I certainly thank Mary that day and other days. You know, there are certain people, you realize when you look back, that there are certain key events, if they hadn't happened, where would we be? If you couldn't move, where would you be? If you didn't have any experience in New England, where would you be? And then uh, there's an interesting historical note of White Oak Baptist Church. In 1740, a gentleman named Shubal Stearns got saved in Stonington, Connecticut. He was in a Baptist church. He came out of the congregational movement. He got saved in Stonington, Stonington, Connecticut, and he served there a, a, a time. But there was persecution in Connecticut against Baptists. And having felt a call to preach, a call to minister, he took his family. Some were grown, grown children and grandchildren, but he took them all. He took them to Sandy Creek, North Carolina, and started Sandy Creek Baptist Church. It's actually Sandy Creek Separate Baptist Church. Because they believed, as Baptists should, that you should be separate from the world. And he began that church, and the church grew, but their philosophy was plant other churches. And from that church and from his ministry, over the next hundred years, not just his lifetime, what's approximated to be 3,000 Baptist churches were started. One of which was Buffalo Ridge Baptist Church in Buffalo Ridge, Tennessee. Tennessee. 
I've never been to Buffalo Ridge, Tennessee. I've never met the pastor. But in 1979, my pastor said, there's a pastor in Tennessee that wants to support you. Really? And so for one year, they sent $50 a month of support to a fledgling, brand-new White Oak Baptist Church from Buffalo Ridge Baptist Church. Until the Baptist Historical Society shared with me that story, I never realized. Stonington, Sandy Creek, Buffalo Ridge, back to Connecticut. Certain people accomplish God's will in our life. Key people, key thoughts. So what if you hadn't found that out? Well, White Oak would still be here. But I wouldn't have the joy of thinking, you know, there's a big plan involved. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than our lifetime. It's bigger than our problems. It's bigger than our shortcomings. It's bigger than our talents. It's bigger than us. If God's in it, all things are possible. A certain man. And I think also God has prepared a certain man a certain person at times, to reveal our iniquity. Not only to reveal his past so we can mature and grow, but he provides some certain people to reveal our iniquity. For Ahab, it was Elijah. For Herod, the Tetrarch, the son of Herod the Great, it was John the Baptist who said, Hey, You're committing adultery. You married the wife of your brother. This is sin. It cost John the Baptist his head. But it was John that told the truth, that revealed iniquity. For David, it was Nathan. You remember Bathsheba and the incident? was the time that kings go forth to battle and David stayed behind. And then he saw an attractive woman on her rooftop in the evening. And he arranged for her husband, first he arranged for her to be brought to the palace and immorality pursued, and then he arranged for her husband to go to the front where surely he would lose his life, and did. And then all Israel went into kind of a funk, kind of a downslide. And David was depressed and despairing, and he tells how he felt in some of the Psalms. And he wondered what was going on. And it was a certain man named Nathan that came to David. Told him a story. A story about someone taking another person's lamb. And David said, well, I want to know who that is. I want to take care of them. That was mean. And he said, you are the one that troubles Israel. Now, did David imprison Nathan? No. Did he persecute him? No. God used Nathan to show David his own iniquity clearly. And David had opportunity to repent and to become the person back on the path that God had for him. There are times when a certain person may come to us and say to us, something's wrong. Have you seen it this way in your life? And we can either say, none of your business. I only answer to God. Well, that sounds uh, 
very pious, doesn't it? That's very spiritual. None of your... Or we can say, I wonder, Lord, is there any merit in this? And if there is, am I willing to change? Am I willing to confess? Am I willing to forsake? Am I willing to make restitution a certain man? There was Martha and Mary. You may recall that one chose to worship the Lord at his feet, and one chose to serve the Lord busily, and that was a good work, but she wasn't showing her heart of adoration when she had an opportunity. And the Lord used one sister to teach the other a lesson. And we don't discover that they hated each other then. We don't discover that there was a negative reaction. It was eye-opening. There may be some of you that someone in your life has shared a truth with you that hurt that caused you to consider, that caused you to realize that your walk, that your walk was flawed and you needed to take steps to change it. How did you react? Because when you responded like David did, when you responded like those sisters did, when you responded, then life was back on track. Smile was back on your face. Joy was back in your step because that person was successful in confronting you on behalf of the Lord with the truth in love. So the Lord has prepared some certain persons to reveal our iniquity. He's prepared some, the first point, to get us on the straight, on the right path, on the path to maturity. But my question to close the message is this. Are you willing to become the certain person for someone else? Because God has prepared some individuals for what he wants to do, should the Lord tarry, for what he wants to do in 2028. For what he wants to do, should the Lord tarry in 2038. You know, when I came in 1980, I could not have pictured 38 years later. We were, we were struggling to picture one year later. Okay. We were struggling to figure out where we would, where we would go. I remember the time when the, uh, the uh, CBI building, the, the person that, it was a, a made-for-profit uh, school, Connecticut Business Institute, to train travel agents, and word processors when they were this big, you know, word processors. And uh, folks like accountants. And uh, the, the person that owned that business called me in and said, Listen, Barry, well, he probably said Reverend because he usually did that. Reverend, the owner of our building says he doesn't want you here anymore. We didn't have a written subcontract. We just used the building. The owner of the building doesn't want you here anymore. He wants to put a bar in next to this, and he doesn't want any church that could go to zoning and say that they're too close and he can't get his permit. He wants you out. Wow. That was a kick in the teeth. We'd gone to 18 different property owners to find someone that would rent to us because we were Baptists. And this was a Roman Catholic town. 
So well, that's against the reality, reality check. Okay. And we said, whoa, what are we going to do? So I went to see the owner. I know who you are. I don't want you in my building anymore. Well, what, what's, what's going on? Right across the parking lot, I need a liquor permit. If the zoning board considers you being here in the building, I said, we don't rent it. Officially, we don't own the building. He says, doesn't matter. I don't want any hiccups to stop my permit. So I want you out. So when do we have to be out? Well, I don't formally go to zoning for another four months. We're getting all the plans together. So you can stay until I go to zoning. Eight and a half years later, he hadn't gotten to zoning. (laughs) People provide, people help, or people hinder. Early in our church life, there were folks like the person who owned the CBI business who said, I won't stand in your way if you go to the owner. I'll, uh, I'll back out of the way, and if he says you can stay, you can stay. He could easily have said, look, I don't want problems with my owner. I have a business to run. You'll have to get out. He just said, no, go take care of it with him. It made all the difference in the world. You know, different moments are so crucial, and we don't know, we don't know them at the time. Someone may come to you and say, you know, I've got this habit. And I have it since before I was saved. And it's not horrible. And it's not, I mean, it's not the kind of thing that would be on the newspaper headlines. It's just a bad habit. But is it, should I really, should I really change this or is it just inconsequential? And your simple answer, well, I think, I think that's hurting your body. And your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So I think God would, would say that that's a sin. <gasps> Use the word sin today, 2018? That's so subjective. No, he needs certain people to say, I think that's sin. Certain people to say, but I'll help you. Certain people to say, I'll stand with you. I'll help you get through that. I'll help you get over it. I'll help you get over that bad habit of vulgar language or that bad habit of alcohol or that bad habit of... Uh, of uh, discourtesy and rudeness or, you know, it doesn't all have to be something that's on the front pages. But will you be the certain one that says, hey, what you doing tonight? Will you be the certain one that says, listen, I need a prayer partner. And you pick out that prayer partner because they're a struggling Christian and you know you can help them. Not just because you need a prayer partner. Certain man. A certain woman will take a younger woman under your wing and be her friend and guide. A certain person. A certain man. A picture of courage to some. A picture of encouragement to others. A pillar of faith to some. An instrument of God's power to others. An instrument, an example of holiness. 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 
I still remember, last illustration, I still remember the night that in a business meeting we voted to buy this property. And there was a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I didn't want to cut off discussion, but it was getting repetitious. And then Sister Gail asked to be recognized. And Sister Gail stood up. Some of you know Sister Gail, some of you don't. And she said, well, I don't know. I don't know why we have all this talk, back and forth talk. And she said something like this. It's time for faith to make the decision. This isn't about money. And this isn't about who's in charge. This is about faith. And if we don't use our faith tonight, we're never going to have property. Because it takes faith. You know, nobody wanted to talk after that. Nobody wanted to argue the merits of the mortgage payment. Nobody wanted to... We had a vote. It wasn't 100%. Good people disagree on big issues. It wasn't 100%. It was highly in favor, but it wasn't... And that's fine. That's the way, to be honest. But that certain woman brought to the end a discussion that was going nowhere. And here we are. Not only the property, but the auditorium and the ministries. And Are you willing to be Sister Gale? Are you willing to be Bob Crichton? Are you willing to be Geraldine Spangler? Are you willing to be the one God wants to use in someone else's life? Let's bow for prayer. Father, I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach. I've done my best to bring it from my heart. I love White Oak Baptist Church. I love your pastor and his wife. Lord, I simply ask that you'd work in hearts. There may be many people here that are already engaged in being your instruments to help others through a variety of ways. But there may be someone that's making a decision. Am I all in? Making a decision as to whether I'll be available because there'll be a cost of time. There may be a cost of friendships because we're going to help others. It may, it may mean that we need to break off some of our own habits. I leave it with you, Lord, but if there's someone here that's struggling with wanting to surrender to be your instrument, I pray they'd say yes and yield today. If there's a young man or young woman that's struggling about full-time Christian work, about actually being trained to serve in a local church with all their heart, with special training, And I pray, Lord, that they might surrender to full-time Christian work, the mission field, the ministry, Christian education. Lord, so many ways we can serve. I pray today would be a day that they'd say yes and settle it.
Thank you, Lord, for the freedom I've had in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor? Your head's bowed and eyes closed. For some of you here this, this morning, God has been sending a man or a woman along your path to better you, and you've not allowed that process, whatever the pri- problem would be, pride or piousness, arrogance, arrogant spirit. Will you, will you start allowing the people that God brings along your path that want to humbly make you better, will you allow them to do that? For others of you here, you've allowed others to mentor you to be a better person. Now it's your turn. It's your turn to be that certain man, that certain woman. Don't hold back any longer. Give your heart to the Lord and let Him use you to lead others. Let's stand to our feet. The uh, heads bowed, eyes closed. The altar's open. How about it, Christian? God brings those people along your path. Are you going to let them better you? God's encouraging you to be that person that betters others. Will you take that challenge? Some of you here this morning, you may not know Christ as your Savior. You may not know 100% sure that if you were to die, that you'd go to heaven. Standing down front here, one of our assistant pastors, Pastor Mike Rivera, would like to take the Bible to show you how you can know for sure that when you die, your sins will be forgiven and you can go to heaven. Others of you here might be saved and not baptized. Our baptismal waters are ready. We'd love to help you to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. And then there might be others who need to join our church or would like information on that. During this time of invitation, Pastor Mike, standing down front, would like to help you with those decisions. Whether you make a decision in a pew or here at the altar, let's give our hearts to the Lord as the piano plays.